have in the Bible. First Corinthians is really about calling people out on some of the nonsense that's been going on in the church. It's confrontational, it's theological. Second Corinthians is far more heartfelt and personal. Um, it's a heart wide open from Paul to this church. It's the most personal that Paul gets in any of the letters that he wrote in the Bible. The reason that he is so personal is very simple. He's trying to emphasize to these people who they've had a bit of a public falling out. They've kind of turned their back on him a wee bit. He's had to go in. There's been this painful visit. There's been this sorrowful letter. And now they're starting to turn and come back to sort of say, okay, actually, Paul, we recognize that we were wrong in this. And so what he's wanting to do is show and re-emphasize and reaffirm, look, I still deeply love you. This hasn't affected how I care about you. This hasn't impacted how I think about you. I still love you, and I still love you as a church. And, and part of what he's doing in this letter is emphasizing that being honest and, and having hard conversations with people is part of the reality of loving someone. It's not just about letting them get away with it. That can be quite cruel to let people do whatever they want when you know it's going to harm them. But loving someone means sometimes having to, to reach out and have those difficult talks. There is a fundamental truth that applies across not just spiritual things, but just life in general. Um, and whether it's parenting or friendships or if you lead a team at work or, or, or whatever it happens to be, the truth is that nobody cares how much you know until they know how much you care. That's just life, okay? And when you know that someone is speaking to you from a place of love and there's tears in their eyes and it's heartfelt, you're going to listen so much more intently to that person than anyone else who maybe would just um, bark orders at you. And so Paul, as he reaches out in love to this church, he comforts them and he lets them know how much he cares by composing perhaps one of the most poignant pieces in this poignant letter. And that's chapter 5. Now, chapter 5 often gets read at funerals. All right, we're not going to go down that road th this evening. Uh, because it does speak about a future home and our permanent home, our heavenly dwelling place. And so a lot of preachers will go to that uh, and, and use it as a funeral. But that's not really the context of, of the chapter. Um, it's not about comforting people in the midst of bereavement. It's not about when something bad happens and it's behind you. Here is something just to make you feel a wee bit better. Rather, it's more about the comfort in the face of danger that's ahead of you. It's not about comforting the mourner, but it's about strengthening the fighter. Paul is writing in this context of what we have spoken about over the last couple of sermons and we've been talking about how Paul can keep going whenever sort of the, someone's got his foot on his neck. Uh, he's, he's down, but he's not out. How does he do that? And Well, from the end of chapter 3, um, two weeks, two Sunday nights ago? No, that's not right. Last Sunday night. And then this morning in chapter 4, uh, and now in chapter 5, there's this, uh, he's kind of laying out why he is so confident in what's going on, why he keeps going, why he keeps doing this after punch, after punch, after punch, why he keeps going. And so in the end of chapter 3, it's the calling that he has. And then this morning we looked at the treasure that he has in, in jars of clay, the hope, uh, the faith in the unseen that he has. The, the, and now he's going to talk about the hope that he has in Christ, that it's not just this one layer, this one thing that offers him hope, but he's pulling hope from so many different aspects of his walk with Christ. And it's that that drives him on the multitude of reasons. 
And so he writes with real confidence and authority. Let's just drop in at the end of the last chapter. So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away. So physically, it's hard. Physically, there, there's, uh, whether it's just aging and getting older and, and the trials that come with that, or whether it's physical opposition, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal way to glory beyond all comparison. As we look, not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, are temporal, but the things that are unseen are eternal. And that's where we finished this morning. But then he just flows into chapter 5. For we know that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house, not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. So they feel the confidence that he has there just going in to chapter 5. It's not, well, here's what I'm thinking. Here's what I hope might be happening. Here's my opinion on a couple of different things. It's this declaration. He says, we absolutely, 100% know what's happening. It amazes me, scares me, in an amazing kind of way. How many Christians do not have confidence in what's happening after they die? I understand sometimes we, we can have questions, we can have doubts. But what scares me is just the amount of Christians that maybe don't have that confidence, that assurance. To, to say with hand on heart, total confidence, listen, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. It's as simple as that. So many people lack that confidence. And yet people want to know their future, to have something to put their hope in, to anchor themselves in something. How do I know that? Because of how luc lucrative the... Um, uh, and, and how much money is spent on psychic mediums uh, and people who read their star signs and all the rest of it. People clambering for a sense of security and something, but they're hoping. Paul says, yeah, but I know. I know. And so the tent that he talks about here is our physical body. Now, Paul was a tent maker by trade, so he respected tents. He liked tents. He's not being mean-spirited about tents or trying to run them down. He liked tents. He respected tents. But he knows their limitations better than anyone else. But before we get to that, notice he says, if the tent is destroyed. So he says, look, I know what's going to happen after I die. But if I die, Why is he saying if? Is there a chance that we might not die? I mean, surely of all the things that you can be certain of in this life, it's death and taxes, right? Those are the two things that you know are happening. So why is Paul saying if? What he means by if is that he understands and he's living with an expectation that it could be that the Lord will return in his generation. And so while he was sure of heaven, he couldn't be sure how he would get there. All right, He knew where he was going. He just didn't know how he was going to get there. He, wouldn't, he wasn't sure if he was going to die and be resurrected into the new body or that the Lord would return and that he would ascend with the Lord and meet him in the sky. He didn't know. See, Paul's a heavenly-minded person. He, he, he used heaven a lot to motivate him and he brought his thinking in and around how uh, he, he believed so wholeheartedly in that confidence that he knew that he was going to be there. You'll hear people say sometimes that Christians can be so heavenly minded that they're no earthly use. 
I would counter and say that as a Christian, you cannot be of any, any earthly use to God until you are heavenly minded. 1 John 3 gives us an insight into heavenly minded people. 1 John 3 verse 2 says, We know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. And so this idea of knowing that he's going to come, knowing that he's going to come, it impacts how we're going to behave. It impacts our purity or our walk with God. When you see and when you know where you're going, your perspective changes. When you see Christ, when you see the life in the light of eternity, and that's where we finished this morning, it should change how we think. It should change in the way we act. If this life is all we have, we're going to act very differently. But if this is just a small wee snippet compared to what all of eternity could be, that changes again then how we act and think. It, it's like the first time you saw the movie Jaws, okay? You know, with the shark. You know, you kind of see it and you kind of go, oh, I am not getting in the bath anymore. I'm not going near any body of water just in case because it kind of just, and there's people who are genuinely scared to go out near the sea again because it was like, that impacted me. <laughs> it scared me. Or, you know, it's like whenever you see what goes into making marshmallows, you don't want to know. Uh, if you enjoy marshmallows, do yourself a favor. Don't Google it. Don't look it up. It's not going to help you because once you see what goes into them, you're not going to want to eat them again. That's just how it is. But you see, seeing things, seeing and, and, and realizing what could happen, it, it, it impacts. And that's why Jesus said in John 3, let not your hearts be troubled. Don't be afraid. Don't be scared. Don't be intimidated. Don't be anxious. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms, are many mansions. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. Jesus is saying, don't get too worried about the tent. I've got a mansion sorted for you. Heavenly-minded people can see the trouble of the world, but are less inclined to be distressed by it because they know that there's a bigger picture there. They are thinking about the permanent home more than the temporary home. Paul would go on to say in 1 Thessalonians, therefore comfort one another with these words. So the tent is temporary home. Now, I, I did a wee bit of camping whenever I was younger, and I enjoyed it for, for what it was. Um, the wonderful thing about tents is that they're temporary. You can pitch a tent wherever you, you want. Um, you don't have to worry about your surroundings too much. You don't have to worry about, you know, you're not going to landscape around the tent or, you know, you're not going to do anything like, you know, put a wee path in or you're not going to do that because it's temporary. You're not staying. But a building is permanent. It's a house that makes a home. And camping is lots of fun initially. And for different people, the tolerance will, you know, that novelty will wear off faster for some than others. For some, a night will be enough. I said, nope, not doing that again. Others might do a week or two weeks. Some might do a month or however long you can do. But after a while, you start yearning for a hot shower. After a while, you start yearning for a proper soft bed, your own bed, your own pillow, the proper home-cooked meal the comfort of your real 
That's what he's talking about here. For in this tent we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling. If indeed by putting it on we may not be found naked. For while we are still in this tent, we groan being burdened. Not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed, so that what is mortal may be swallowed by life. He who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. See, some people will fight and fight and fight to stay young, and they grow old disgracefully. All right, they're going to fight it tooth and nail. They are not going to go quietly into the night. And it's one thing to stay up to speed with fashion. Nothing wrong with that, of course not. Um, but then you, there's some of the nipping and the tucking and the sucking and the lifting and the Botoxing and all the rest. But listen, you can fool some of the people some of the time. But it's temporary. It's a losing battle because the tent will never be able to compare to the glory of a mansion. I mean, I've noticed the amount of noises I'm starting to make. Sorry, see, sitting down, ah, getting up, ah, you know, and it's like, it's not even, I'm, it just it comes out. It just seems to be part of the process of moving my legs now. Uh, the noise that I don't make is, wee, you know, it's, it's a lot harder. It's, it's an effort. It's not easy. As, and that's what this verse is talking about. It, it, as we get older, the tent sags a wee bit. The poles start showing a wee bit more give. Verse 4 says, we groan and we are burdened. It's the limitations of age. It's the reality of living in this world. It's not having a death wish. It's not wishing life away by sitting in a corner. Some retirees will do that. that you know, they'll not have any hobbies. They'll not have any sports. But it's, it's what Solomon calls um, when God has hidden eternity in our hearts. There is this longing for home because we see that there is no competition between a tent and a mansion. The novelty's worn off. We are ready for our home in heaven. I heard about a ship's captain who was struggling Things weren't going well, and he asked for a report. And the first mate came to him, and uh, it wasn't great. And so passengers heard the following announcement over the tannoy. He says, folks, let you know, the hull is leaking, so we could go down. On the other hand, the boiler is blowing, so we may go up. <coughs> Regardless, we will go on. And that's Paul's point. We will get there. We will get home. We will get to our heavenly home. But this tent is only supposed to be temporary. So keep going. How did you know? Verse 5, we have the Spirit as a guarantee, which is a reminder of what he said in that chapter 1, verse 22. And so we are always of good courage. Remember the last chapter, he says, we do not lose heart. We do not lose heart. It's this confidence that he has here. We know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. For we walk by faith, not by sight. Yes, we are of good courage, and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please Him. Now notice again this. Oh, my nose is itchy, sorry. Notice again this confident language that He has here. Always, we know, but... What does it mean to be away from the Lord? Because surely Jesus uh, and scriptures have told us that he would be with us always. 
that he would never leave us or forsake us. So what does it mean here that we are away from the Lord? Well, if you are a Christian here this evening and you are going to be honest with yourself, you will know and you will have experienced that there are times in your life when you don't experience the presence of God as clearly as other times. There are times when it's either in our quiet times or in a service, whether it's worship or preaching, or we see God at work and we feel God so close and we're so aware and so conscious. And there are other times when we don't feel that. Paul is saying that here in the tent, we don't always have that closeness, but when we get home to that mansion, we will have and we will experience that uninterrupted intimacy of being face-to-face with the Savior. That's what he's talking about. He says that's the difference. That's why we long for it. That's why we yearn for it. We have faith at the minute, not sight, but we, will, we have the confidence that one day faith will give way to sight. In verse 9, we are told that a Christian can only ever be one of two places. A Christian is either here on earth in the tent or in home in heaven in the mansion. There is no option for a Christian to maybe slip out of the tent and into hell. There is no allowance here for um, purgatory, a waiting area, nothing like that. How sad for so many people who, who claim to know Christ, who, who claim to, to, to follow Christ, but then there, there's a cancer diagnosis or, or there's a bereavement or, or there's, there's a fear of mortality or something happens. And yet having followed all the religion and all the rules for all their life, a priest can still offer them zero assurances that yes, you will definitely be in heaven immediately after you die. They can't do it. The gospel can. The gospel can offer you 100% guarantees. Every other religion says, well, it all depends. It depends on how good you are. It depends if, if, you know, if, the, t- if the balance tips in your scale, in your side or not. It all depends. But no, the gospel says we are either at home with the Lord or we're here on earth. Those are the options. What wonderful encouragement that is. Although Paul isn't like us, he's in a slightly different category. He has seen it. He has seen what it's there. He had a vision in chapter 12, and I don't like Paul for this. Me and him are going to have a talk about this when we get to heaven, uh, because um, he says in chapter 12, verse 3 and 4, I know this man who got caught up into paradise, whether in the body or out of the body, I don't know. God knows. But he heard things that cannot be told, which man cannot utter. <coughs> and he goes on to talk about this experience that he has in heaven. And so I'm like, Paul, please tell me something about it. Let, just give me some sort of insight into what it was like. Oh, no, I couldn't. Well, try. <laughs> try, please. Just give us something. Just give me something to hold. Oh, no, well, it wouldn't be lawful for me to do so. Oh, Paul, you're doing my in. But when you look at the life of Paul, I think what we can conclude is that whatever it is that he saw, whatever it is that he saw of heaven, must have been spectacular. Because look at the life that he lived. 
Look at how he talked about his hope of getting there. It must have been something special. I believe that when a Christian dies, whether it is at the hands of a disease, uh, whether it is slow, whether it is fast, whether it's by surprise, whether it is by a bullet, whether it's by your own hand, whatever it happens to be, as soon as a believer closes their eyes in death, in the blinking of an eye, in the twinkling of an eye, they will open their eyes in heaven, they'll be in the presence of the king, and their face will drop, and it will be like, wow, wow. All right, none of this St. Peter at the pearly gates with a clipboard, all right? It's not this opening line of a joke, all right? That's not what it's like. You can have confidence that you are going to be in the presence of the king, not queuing up outside, okay? That's not, that's not scripture. We will honestly believe in that moment that everything that we went through in this earth was worth it. We will be so in awe of being in the presence of God. Whatever it is that you're going through, whatever it is that you're finding so hard now, light, momentary affliction. That's what he said in the last chapter. People who understand this then don't waste their life here. They don't waste their life going after trivial things. They don't waste their retirement on holidays and hobbies just waiting to get to heaven. There is no believer who has seen Christ for all he is and is lazy in the things of God. Because when you see the reality, it stirs you, verse 9. Why? To please him. I'm living to please him. Forget about all the rest of it. Is that, is, is that going to please him? No, then I want to do something that pleases him. Is that, no, I want to please him. Everything I want to do, I want to please him. Someone once said that when you were born, you cried and the world rejoiced. Live in such a way that when you die, the world cries and you rejoice. Live to please him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. But what we are is known to God, and I hope it is known also to your conscience. So he's talking about the Bema seat, all right? I'm sure if you've been saved then like the time, you'll have heard people talk about the Bema seat. People have written books about this. They have done entire sermon series about it. I'm doing five minutes on it, so forgive me for just touching on it as we go through it. The Bema was a place where people received the rewards. And the Bema in heaven is going to be where Christians are judged in heaven. And I know that raises a few eyebrows or two. Do not confuse the Bema for the great white throne, all right, uh, where those who reject Christ will receive their judgment. That's different. We will be judged when the seventh trumpet is, is sounded, Revelation 11, uh, verse 18-ish, kind of onwards. But the great white throne for the unbeliever is in Revelation 20 and 21. So there's a kind of a gap there between those two things happening. The Bema is where the Christian will receive their rewards for how they ran that race. Perhaps you receive a crown of glory. Perhaps a crown of righteousness. Whatever it is, you will receive it at the Bema. In 1 Corinthians 3, Paul talks a wee bit more about this desire that he has. Let me just read a couple of verses. Verse 10 says, According to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation, and someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it. 
for no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest, for the day will disclose it, because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive our reward. There's the terms and conditions for your reward in heaven, the terms and conditions for what's going to happen at the Bema seat. It'll be tested by fire, and what comes through it will, be, will gauge your reward. Verse 15 of 1 Corinthians 3 says, If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. So we give an account before God how we spent our time, how we spent our resources, how we spent our gifts. There is no condemnation to those who are in Christ. Amen for that. But we still have to give an account for what we have done with the life that he has given us. Hopefully, as good workers that need not be ashamed. I wonder, will you get a reward? Or are you going to stand before God empty-handed like, like the servant who buried his talents because he was too scared of messing up. He was too scared to make a mistake. And so he kind of just buried it all. Folks, you'll get no rewards for a race poorly run. So can I encourage you? Run so as you might win the prize. Jesus himself said in Matthew 6, Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them, for then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. If you're only doing things to be seen, it isn't going to count. It's not going to count. Now, people might still see it, but if you're only doing it because you know that they're watching, it doesn't count. It's going to burn up. It's really, again, this idea of are you living for now? Is it the temporal, the, the things that are seen? Is that what dominates your thinking? You're trying to cram as much as you can into your tent? Whenever really God's been saying, look, you've got to be storing up treasures in heaven. For the mansion that's going to be your permanent home. Verse 11, therefore, knowing the fear or knowing the, how incredibly awesome God is, we have a responsibility to tell others. Just like the watchman in Ezekiel 33. If we see judgment coming and we tell no one, their blood is on our hands. And Paul says, I can sleep with that. I can sleep with that. My part in this, I can sleep with that because God knows that I'm doing my part. Verse 12, so we're not commending ourselves to you again but giving you cause to boast about us so you might be able to answer those who boast about outward appearance and not about what is in the heart. So again, Paul's not boasting or bragging to make himself look big, but his character is being criticized. There's been people who've been trying to undermine him. He says, so look, listen, next time you see those guys, this is what you tell them. This is how you answer them. This is how you go back to them. Verse 13, for if we are beside ourselves, it's for God. If we are in our right mind, it's for you. For the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this. That one... Oh, oh dear, that's not good. For we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. 
wherever or whatever it is that Paul has been accused of doing. He says, we've done it all for God's sake. And we're living for this message, and we know what we're about. So you know what? Forget them. Let people think whatever they want to think, because we know what we're doing. We know how we're living. We know why we're living this way. We know what we're about, and it's not going to change us, because the reward that's ahead of us is too great. Festus thought Paul was nuts in Agrippa. Jesus' own family, remember, in Mark's gospel, came alongside him, tried to keep him quiet. They thought Jesus was nuts. Listen, if they think that about Jesus, they think that about Paul, they're going to think it about us as well. But then our actions are going to seem crazy to people who are only living for now. And they've got a different perspective when they've got a different value system. But the love of Christ compels us. It constrains us. It controls us. I wonder if you're controlled by the love of God. The love of God for sinners. The love of God for the church. The love of God for his word. The love of God for the children of God. Do you have that love? Is that what constrains you? Is that what motivates you? Or is it what other people see? What other people do? Well, I better go because so-and-so is going to be there and I want to look the part. See, people don't care how much you know until they know that you care. So that's why the love of Christ constrains us, compels us, controls us. Because God knows that's what really matters with folks. And verse 15, I, I think, is perhaps one of the most profoundly clear verses in all of Scripture. If you want to talk about freedom in Christ, that's brilliant, but you need to line it up with this verse. Because we need to talk then also about how we are to no longer live for ourselves. As Christ has died uh, uh, for us, uh, and, and we now live not for ourselves, but for him who died for us, we need to line that up with how we think about freedom in Christ. We're free from sin, praise God for that. We're free from the chains of bondage, praise God. But we are compelled, uh, constrained, if you want, we are in chains by love to serve. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, oh, I may have broken this. Can we knock that forward, three for me, please? Thank you. Uh, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, not making his appeal through us. Uh, God, making his appeal through us, we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God for our sake. He made him to be sin who knew no sin, that, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. What wonderful, wonderful verses to finish the chapter. See, there have been many, many studies that talk about how uh, you can find happiness. Books upon books upon books are written to help you find happiness, all right? You go into any book, or if you go to Amazon or whatever, wherever it is you get your books, the most 
popular books are the self-help books because people want to find a path to happiness. But the truth is that forgiven people are happy people. Amen? We should stand out to the world and we should stand out for good reasons, not, not the bad reasons that sometimes Christians stand out for. Forgiveness, you see, brings joy because guilt hinders joy. So when guilt is removed by forgiveness, by repentance, then joy and relief flood in, and that has a way of drawing people in, that joy and that peace that comes from the guilt being lifted. Let me tell you a story. Uh, I heard about uh, an ad that was put in a newspaper in New Zealand. Uh, this was on, on a Monday. The Reverend A.J. Jones has one TV set for sale. Telephone 626-1313 after 7 p.m. And ask for Mrs. Donnelly, who lives with him. Cheap. On Tuesday, an ad ran. We regret any embarrassment caused to Reverend Jones by a typographical error in yesterday's paper. The ad should have read, the Reverend A.J. Jones has one TV set for sale. Cheap. Telephone 626-1313 and ask for Mrs. Donnelly who lives with him after 7 p.m. Wednesday. The Reverend A.J. Jones informs us that he has received several annoying telephone calls because of an incorrect ad in yesterday's paper. It should have read, The Reverend A.J. Jones has one TV set for sale, cheap. Telephone 66-1313 after 7 p.m. and ask for Mrs. Donnelly, who loves with him. <coughs> Thursday. Please take note that I, the Reverend A.J. Jones, have no TV set for sale. I have smashed it. Do not call 661313 anymore. I have not been carrying on with Mrs. Donnelly. She was, until yesterday, my housekeeper. Friday, wanted, housekeeper, usual duties, good pay, love in, Reverend A.J. Jones, telephone 6261313. It's frustrating when other people think you are in the wrong and you're not, isn't it? Matter of fact, uh, Drew, let's put up the next picture here. If you go to India, there is engraved in stone in the church foundation the words, Mrs. Jeffrey Kennedy. <laughs> That's there forever, which is just wonderful. See, to make a mistake and own up to it is one thing. To recognize it and to try and make it right is one thing. But here's the thing. So many people don't realize that they stand convicted and guilty of their sin. They just live in denial of it. Can we move that on there? We'll, let's, we'll get that down there before it goes on Facebook or something. See, for a lot of people, sin is now just so passe. You're better just owning your stuff. Just embrace it as part of who you are. You do you. You live your truth and all the rest of it. Because, hey, it's 2019. You shouldn't feel that way, guilty. You shouldn't feel ashamed of who you are. There's no such th thing as sin. It's just a religious construct that people um, have created to control others. And what happens is that so many people ignore the cause of their unhappiness and try to paper over the cracks, but it's led to our society having the highest suicide rates it's ever had, the highest levels of depression, the highest levels of anxiety, of debt, of self-centeredness. It's not working. We need the message of the cross. That's why Paul makes so much about the word reconciled. 
in these verses. God is in the business of removing sin and removing guilt and replacing it with joy. God is in the business of reconciling, reconciling people to himself. The word reconcile literally means to have a complete turnaround in relationship. It's a total change from brokenness to wholeness. We stand guilty as sinners. Satan has leveled the accusations at us and Jesus stands as our attorney in heaven's courts and he moves for a mistrial. Why? Because the cross has allowed for reconciliation. For our standing as guilty sinners to be totally changed. Verse 19 says, look, he doesn't count, he doesn't impute our trespasses against us. It's, a, it's an, an accounting word. He doesn't account for our sin. He doesn't mark our sins uh, against our account. He doesn't account for them. He doesn't record them. Our trespasses don't carry over into our column, whatever way you do your finances. Notice how the Bible uh, doesn't call sin mistakes or we slip-ups, or accidents, or whoopsies, or whatever it is that you call your we foibles. The Bible calls sin, sin. It is our trespasses. And we must learn to call it sin as well if we ever want to have reconciliation. Only sinners can find joy in a Savior. God only forgives sin. He doesn't do boo-boos or whoopsie-daisies or character flaws. And the world doesn't like this. Although the church doesn't like this, but the Bible is right. The message of the gospel is a rock of offense to some, a stumbling block to those who would believe. But forgiveness can only come to those who are honest, who aren't in denial. Forgiveness, reconciliation is for those who come as repentant sinners before a holy and gracious God. That's how it works. Uh, can we put the next slide up there, Drew, please? Uh, these were on sale in America for a while. You could buy a disposable guilt bag for $2.50. How it worked was very simple. You, were, you would open the bag over your mouth. You would exhale your guilt into the bag. You would seal it and throw it away. Sadly, it's not that easy. The cost is more than $2.50. The cost to remove guilt is the Son of God dying on the cross. But joy comes from knowing forgiveness. Forgiveness comes from knowing we are reconciled. Reconciliation comes from God not imputing our sins, our trespasses against us. How does he do that? By sweeping it under the carpet? No. By, by, by just saying, ah, sure, it's fine, we'll pretend it never happened? No. He is a holy God. He cannot do that. If, he cannot be just if that happens. Can we put the next slide up there, Drew, please? <coughs> he didn't impute our trespasses to us, but verse 21, they are imputed. They are accounted for. They are put in someone's column. It's just not our column. They are imputed to Christ. God treats his son like a sinner so that he can treat a sinner like his son, like his daughter. And Isaiah 53 says, He was pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. This is the only way. Uh, next slide. Uh, the old saying goes, No God, no peace. But if you know God, then you'll know peace. 
Joy from forgiveness, forgiveness from reconciliation, reconciliation from imputation. Jesus was not a sinner, but God treated him like a sinner for our sake. And I hate to break it to you, folks. None of you are saints, but God treats us like one because of the righteousness of God that we've been given. So imagine when people say, oh, no, well, I reckon I'm a good enough person. I, I don't need to be saved. I don't need don't call me a sinner. I don't need to radically change. I don't need reconciliation. I don't need to do all that stuff, Jeff. I don't need the cross. Imagine how that hurts the heart of God. Says, Look, you don't understand what really is happening here. Corey Tim Boom said, For, uh, God forgives all our sins, casting them into the sea of his forgetfulness, and then posts a sign that says, no fishing. But sometimes we can't help ourselves, right? We love to go and dredge it up again. We live with the guilt of things that have been forgiven. We live denying the power of the work of reconciliation. Remember what Jesus said on the cross, it is finished, it is done. Leave it in the depths of the sea. And with each new sin, we can come to our Savior and hand it over to him so for him to drown it with the others, knowing that it too is done with, it's banished, it's finished. And so tonight, come, confess it, knowing the reality, and then move on. Your joy will grow. Your guilt will stop weighing you down. And all this is from God. This is the message that he gives us. This is why we can keep going on. When life is tough, when it's hard, when we struggle to keep going, we want to give up, we want to give in, we want to just forget about it. Last slide there, Drew, please. This is the motivation from Paul. This is why he keeps going. Right from chapter 3, right through to the end of chapter 5, this is the motivation that he gives us, the calling that we have, the, the, the treasure that we have, the faith that we have, the hope that we have, the message that we have. This is the motivation. Who could give up and walk away from a God who's given us so much? Let's, let's pray, and then we'll, we'll sing a song.